0: We've come to episode 16, which mostly takes place in the cabman's shelter under the arch of the Line Bridge beside Butt Bridge. And we're looking down from Liberty Hall, directly on the site of the cabman's shelter. At the end of episode 15, we left Bloom brushing the shavings off Stephen, setting him to write in real Samaritan fashion it seems that Stephen expressed the desire for a drink. Bloom assumes that it's non-alcoholic and says he doesn't know where he can get water at that hour of the night. Anyway, they come out of Beaver Street into Montgomery Street, which is now Foley Street, and by that way, they turn to the right into Amiens Street. They walk along Amiens Street under the Line Bridge, past the North Star Hotel, past Amiens Street Station, which is now Connolly Station, on to the back of the morgue, past the public house, which is on the corner of Store Street. They go up by the Garda Station, which was a DMP station then, and turn left and go down to the back of the Custom House to the place that we are now looking down on, where there was actually a cabman shelter, which was supposed to be run by Skin the Goat of the Invincibles.
1: Mr. Bloom and Stephen entered the cabman's shelter, an unpretentious wooden structure where, prior to then, he had rarely, if ever, been before. The former having previously whispered to the latter a few hints anent the keeper of it, said to be the once famous Skin the Goat, Fitzharris the Invincible, though he wouldn't vouch for the actual facts which, quite possibly, there was not one vestige of truth in. A few moments later saw our two noctambules safely seated in a dis only to be greeted by stares from the decidedly miscellaneous collection of waifs and strays and other nondescript specimens of the genus homo, already there engaged in eating and drinking, diversified by conversation, for whom they seemingly formed an object of marked curiosity.
2: Finally, they are alone together. This, in some way, could be the high point of the book, where the two main figures are now finally alone. And Bloom takes the opportunity and keeps talking to Stephen, who does not seem to be all too responsive. Anyway, they enter this very primitive, I think, wooden structure, the Catman's Shelter, where they find a group of uh, late-night customers. And as I said, the rumor is that Fitz Fitzharris, who had a very minor role in the Phoenix Park murders, drove him.
0: He drove the decoy yep. carriage,
2: yep. not sure. the actual getaway one. He may run that, that's a rumor. And there they settle down. Bloom tries to force some... Um, Coffee, which isn't the best coffee, probably, on Stephen and Stephen is rather reluctant. Now, touching a cup of coffee...
1: Mr Bloom ventured to plausibly suggest to break the ice.
2: It occurs to me
3: you ought to sample something in the shape of solid food. Say a roll of some description.
2: Again, we have a lot of conversation. Mainly in the foreground, there's a sailor whose name he says is... Murphy's my name. The sailor continued.
4: W.B. Murphy of Carriglow. Nor that is. Queenstown Harbour, Stephen replied. That's right, the sailor said. And he tells of his adventures, and his adventure tales are not perhaps to be taken at strict face value. I was in the Red Sea. I was in China and North America and South America. I seen icebergs plenty, growlers. I was in Stockholm and the Black Sea, the Dardanelles under Captain Dalton. The best bloody man that ever scuttled a ship. I see. He
2: produces a postcard in evidence. The postcard has no relation to what he's been saying. And Bloom is a bit sceptical. And he tries to talk to Stephen, who is, as I say, not particularly uh, friendly. My belief is, to tell you the candid truth, that
3: those bits were genuine forgeries, all of them put in by monks most probably. Or it's the big question of our national poet over again, who precisely wrote them, like Hamlet and Bacon... "'as you, who know your Shakespeare infinitely better than I, "'of course I needn't tell you. "'Can't you drink that coffee, by the way? "'Let me stir it and take a piece of that bun. "'It's like one of our skipper's bricks disguised. "'Still, no one can give what he hasn't got. "'Try a bit.'
1: "'Couldn't,' Stephen contrive to get out his mental organs for the moment, refusing to dictate further.
2: There's also a newspaper on the table, the Evening Telegraph, which they read, the pink edition. It was pink at the time. And it had the racing results. And it has all kinds of uh, news of the day, which Joyce took from the newspaper. And above all, it has a report of the funeral. This morning, Heinz put it in, of course.
3: The remains of the late Mr. Patrick Dignam were removed from his residence, Number 9, Newbridge Avenue, Sandy Mount, for interment in Glasnevin. The deceased gentleman was a most popular and genial personality in city life, and his demise after a brief illness came as a great shock to citizens of all classes by whom he is deeply
2: regretted. Only a few, a handful of people attending. And some of them are wrong. For example, Stephen Dedalus is mentioned after his father, and Stephen Dedalus we know was somewhere quite else. McCoy is mentioned, who wasn't there, but he asked Bloom to put down his name, so the falsification is due to Bloom. And Bloom himself, who in the morning carefully indicated his first name was Leopold L, but nobody knows him by first name, that is as L. Boom. C.P. McCoy, Macintosh, and several others. Because Bloom, who is again responsible for this, was helping the journalist to ask, and the man in the... and Bloom completely sent Macintosh, and Heinz walked away and wrote down, it seems, now Macintosh. All we know is he's probably, most likely, misnamed, and so
1: he becomes an interesting figure. It goes to show that the report isn't accurate. L. Boom pointed it out to his companion, B.A., engaged in stifling another yawn, half-nervousness, not forgetting the usual crop of nonsensical howlers of misprints. and
2: misprints. Then, later, there lapses in the conversation. Bloom talks about his adventure in Cyclops with Kean and how he silenced the citizen. He tells it with some changes then he produces a faded creased photograph of his wife standing in front of a piano taken by lafayette across uh, not far away from here uh, which shows her as a singer and so in a way bloom tempts stephen with a picture and invites
1: him to spend the night in his home stephen obviously addressed, looked down on the photo, showing a large-sized lady with her fleshy charms on evidence in an open fashion, as she was in the full bloom of womanhood, in evening dress cut ostentatiously low for the occasion, to give a liberal display of bosom, with more than vision of breasts, her full lips parted, and some perfect teeth, standing near, ostensibly with gravity, a piano, on the rest of which was In Old Madrid, a ballad, pretty in its way, which was then all the vogue. Her, the lady's eyes, dark, Large, looked at Stephen, about to smile about something to be admired. Then they leave, walking towards his home, talking a bit more about music. As they made tracks arm in arm across Beresford Place. When they
2: talk about music, they have
1: more to say to
2: each other. Even Stephen seems to loosen up a little bit, but they have totally different tastes,
1: and it's interesting to see what Bloom says. He infinitely preferred the sacred music of the Catholic Church to anything the opposite shop could offer in that line, such as those moody and sankey hymns or... Bid me to live, and I will live, thy Protestant to be.
2: And he thinks this is a Protestant hymn, whereas it's a love song, and the Protestant is somebody who protests his love. So there's a lot of misunderstanding all through. And he even thinks of organising a concert tour with Stephen in the English watering places, that he would become
0: the business manager, preferably with Molly and Stephen together. But even there, you get a change of identity. What was the organising company to be called? The Tweedy Flower. Yeah. Yeah. So here you have his pseudonym was mm-hmm. Martha Clifford and the maiden name of his yeah. wife. So, unless you know that. An all star Irish cast, the
1: Tweedy Flower Grand Opera Company, with its own legal consort as leading lady, as a sort of counterblast to the Elster Grimes and Moody Manners. Perfectly simple matter, and he was quite sanguine of success.
0: But there's another thing in which Bloom confuses everything. We've assumed that Bloom is Jewish, and then he is narrating to Stephen what happened in Barney Kiernan's, the altercation he had with the citizen about which we've spoken earlier, and he says... He called me a Jew,
3: and in a heated fashion, offensively. So I, without deviating from plain facts in the least, told him his God, I mean Christ, was a Jew too, and all his family, like me,
2: though in reality I'm not. It's a passage that has generated quite a bit of response and criticism. He's blue Bajor, isn't he? How I read it is, he clearly asserted Christ was a Jew like me in the 12th chapter. And here he repeats it, and then he says in a way cautious as ever, and uh, correcting himself, though in reality I'm not. He might mean not a religious Jew, for example. I think the question here is how do you define nationality and Jewishness, you know. There is the descent from the mother. In this sense, he also doesn't seem to be Jewish. And I think the issue is also that sometimes your identity is also determined by somebody else. So it's more a question of what is reality, you know. And don't forget, Years later, many Jews were killed whether they were Jews or not, simply because they were taken to be strictly according to whatever criteria they may not have been. So I think this is the issue, and this chapter confuses everything. You can't rely on anything. There's a slight element of distrust that gets into it, and I think it's this distrust that suffuses the whole chapter and makes it very interesting. You just
3: took the words out of my mouth. He said. A hocus-pocus of conflicting evidence that, candidly, you
0: couldn't remotely. Well, of course, on the Jewish question, uh, he was, I take it, born a Protestant, insofar as his father had... Religiously. Religiously, yes. His father was Jewish. We don't know what his mother was. We presume... Christian of some sort. He was then brought up a Protestant, went to high school. Then in order to marry Marion Tweedy, he converted to Catholicism. Yep. I think he's been baptized three times. Yep,
2: <laughs> that's the next chapter that says it. Yeah. Um, that's interesting uh, that Bloom is in three relations and yet out of them. So he's multiply excluded and
0: included. The strange thing is, though, that everyone in the book regards him as a Jew. Yep. Yeah. Which, which is ironic. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, there's one scholar who wants proof that Blue is not the Jew, but by that he meant he would not be accepted, say, by Israel now. But there are so many ways of defining this, and, and that that's part of... Um, the book has to do with identity. Odysseus disguised his and gave wrong names. We don't know whether Murphy is really Murphy, whether that's a very common name. Stephen, in fact, talks about names, that names are impostors. There's a lot of that... In the book, play-acting, role-playing, we don't know whether Skindegoat was Skindegoat.
1: Sounds are impostures, Stephen said after a pause of some little time. Like names, Cicero, Podmore, Napoleon, Mr. Goodbody,
0: Jesus, Mr. Doyle. Shakespeare's were as common as Murphy's. What's in a name? Here, I think, uh, is one of the few chapters in which the correspondence with Homer... Is important insofar as Ulysses comes to the swineherd Eumaeus disguised as a beggar then reveals himself to Telemachus he, he tells a false story to Eumaeus and then having revealed himself to Telemachus they set out to destroy the suitors yep. so we have a double Ulysses figure in it, insofar as we have Bloom, as the, the one that's usually true But the sailor, W.B. Murphy, yeah. is a form of Ulysses.
4: I seen a crocodile bite the fluke of an anchor, same as I chewed that quid.
1: He took out of his mouth the pulpy quid, and lodging it between his teeth, bis ferociously.
4: Like that. And I've seen man-eaters in Peru that
0: eats corpses and the livers and of telling all sorts of false tales. Yes, the
2: kind of issue tells all these uh, fake biographies that Odysseus makes. But it's again inverted. Bloom is relatively straightforward. Bloom doesn't lie, but the same, in fact, it is Bloom, who is as sceptical as in Homer, Eumius mm. is, who doesn't quite believe what the beggar tells mm. him. In some ways, it is, in a way, the most homeric, because in Homer, Odysseus has to be very careful whom you can trust. He hides his identity. At a certain point, he has to prove his identity. He has to sound out, and he's very
1: careful. And here, Bloom is the one who is careful. He turns over the postcard and sees that it doesn't match. Having detected a discrepancy between his name, assuming he was the person he represented himself to be, and not sailing under false colours after having boxed the compass on the strict QT somewhere, and the fictitious addressee of the missive, which made him nourish some suspicions of our friend's bona fides. In fact, one of the themes that makes the chapter
2: quite interesting is a general distrust in reports. The newspaper, which is wrong in listing people who weren't there, or listing them wrongly and all of that. You cannot trust the stories of the sailor. In fact, at one point, Bloom, who wants to get in, asks about Gibraltar several times until he's listened to, and then the sailor dismisses, oh, I'm tired of them rocks the sea. Now, you might say if you sail past Gibraltar, which I never did, it might not appear as a rock because it would be seen against the headland. so we don't know if he was even in the
4: Mediterranean. Tall tales. Fort Camden and Fort Carlisle, that's where I hailed from. My little woman's down there, she's waiting for me, I know. For England, home and beauty. She's my own true wife I haven't seen for seven years now sailing about.
2: The sailor also says he has a wife and children, and he hasn't seen for many, but she's in no hurry to go home. So well, there's another kind of a mystery,
0: Well, no, that is typical of Ulysses, yeah. uh, loitering okay. with Calypso yeah, yeah. and okay. with Circe. Yeah. And you also find, on another Homeric yeah. level, yeah. that he has a son, Danny, who had a cushy job, according to him, in Cork, mm-hmm. in a draper's shop, mm-hmm. who has run away to sea, yeah. presumably, Telemachus like yeah. to seek Ulysses, yeah. who has been away yeah, yeah. for a long time. Yeah. Or am I drawing a long no, 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 there? No.
2: Uh, but you see what happened. I said the story of the sailor is doubtful. He pretends he has a family, hasn't been there long, he's in no hurry to go home, so there's a mystery. On the Homeric level, we have an answer, not on the literal one. <laughs> that happens very often.
4: I hate roaming about. There's my son now, Danny, run off to sea, and his mother got him taken a drapers in Cork where he could be drawing easy money.
2: Everything we said isn't quite true, and that fits. For that's not the impression the readers get. What you see at once is a strange kind of language. In fact, it's a bad kind of language. All the mistakes that we're always taught not to do are made here. That is elegant variation, uh, clichés, (laughs) the wrong metaphors. Bloom seems to try to impress Stephen by a kind of better language. Not that this is what Bloom actually says or often we can't really tell, when we have dialogue, whether Bloom would actually say this. So the language is that of provincial newspapers, of uh, clichés, uh, that you don't say the ordinary things, but you have, as the elegant variant here, you often have, not he said, but he interposed, he, he ejaculated,
1: you have these variants in the speech. Yes, Mr. Bloom thoroughly agreed, entirely endorsing the remark. That was overwhelmingly right and the whole world was overwhelmingly full of that sort of thing.
2: People have said, this is a boring chapter. Uh, Many people find it boring, and some even said, oh, well, Because the cars are tired, the language is tired, and it's boring. I don't think so. To me, it seems it's the language when late at night you're tired and suddenly get the second wind, Mm. and you're quite animated. What you say when you hear it the next day, if you could, would be very trite. Just to give an example of what it is, and I think Bloom is trying to impress Stephen. This is supposed to be dialogue. No,
1: Mr Bloom repeated again.
2: I
3: wouldn't personally repose much trust in that boon companion of yours who contributes the humorous element, Dr Mulligan as a guide, philosopher and friend.
2: It's one of those well known mistakes to say repeat again when it's only repeated. I wouldn't personally repose much trust in that boon companion of yours who contributes to the humorous element, Dr. Mulligan. Now, that's a very elaborate thing. I wouldn't personally repose much trust in uh, the boon of yours who don't the humorous element as a guide, philosopher, and friend. That is a, a quotation from point Bloom would hardly speak so. And then the good thing is, if I were in your shoes. Bloom wants to warn Stephen against Mulligan, if I were in your shoes, Stephen is wearing Mulligan's shoes, which Bloom cannot know, so he's open. He knows which side his bread, he knows is, which buttered. Side his bread is buttered on.
3: Though in all probability he never realised what it is to be without regular
2: meals. And we had earlier on, Mulligan butters his bread on both sides. So at every step, Bloom fumbles again and does something wrong. And so the, the language is a delightful chain of stylistic disasters that makes it very funny.
0: And there's quite a lot of foreign language in this, too. And those of us who don't know Italian say, see nothing wrong with Bloom saying that it's a romantic language and all the rest. It isn't until we get the translation of what the ice cream people are saying that we suddenly realise the vulgarity (laughs) of the whole thing.
2: Puttana, Madonna che ci dia i oh,
4: ragione oh, la the
0: emoji, mezzo sofrana, oh, Dice
4: lui a puto, sui.
2: It's interesting now, Bloom thinks it's something romantic and they're just haggling over money and Bloom also has some interest uh, wait a moment um, when he says there are more languages than were absolutely necessary and he advises Stephen who he knows is a poet, to write poetry in Italian as though you could just switch to another, and then says,
1: Bella Donna Volio. Mr. Bloom, availing himself of the right of free speech, he having just a bowing acquaintance with the language in dispute, though to be sure rather in a quandary over Volio, remarked to his protege in an audible tone of voice, apropos of the battle royal in the street, which was still raging fast and furious. A beautiful language. I mean for singing purposes. Why do you not
3: write your poetry in that language? Bella Poetria. It is so melodious and full. Bella Donna Voglio.
4: By some,
2: Underconscious, bella donna, like his wife, volio, which is what he thinks she sings together with Boylan. So there are all kinds of undertones as well. Then, at a certain point, Bloom tempts Stephen, it seems, with uh, the picture. Now. Mrs. Bloom, my wife, the prima donna, Madame Marion Tweedy. Bloom indicated. Taken
3: a
0: few years since. In this episode, they come together. But at the close of the episode, when Bloom asks Stephen to link him, Stephen reacts badly. He doesn't like being linked at all. Yeah.
2: There is this moment when Stephen takes him out and takes him by the arm, and Stephen freezes on as mm-hmm. he did with Buck Mulligan earlier on. In fact, one of the things is in the first of the homecoming chapters, this one 16th, which in a way corresponds to the first of the Telemachus chapter, you have Bloom out of a genuine impulse, replacing Buck Mulligan, who appears to be friendly. Uh, So in a way, Bloom takes over the function that Mulligan perhaps merely uh, feigned or or pretended to do.
0: But Bloom doesn't understand Stephen at all. I mean, when he remembers what he was muttering at the end of the last episode, he's convinced that he has someone called Miss Ferguson, whereas we know it's who goes with Fergus" by Yates. Mm At the same time we see something else about Bloom that we thought was a fairy tale that he was, he was involved in Irish politics 20 years ago and seems to have been involved quite seriously. This idea of becoming an MP seems to have some basis in fact.
2: As we read in the next chapter, he wanted to become an MP. Mm. It seems to be more a kind of fleeting aspiration than anything in reality. But the main thing is, when we discuss about these things in the country, that we're never quite certain. What's this I was saying?
1: Ah, yes. My wife, he intimated, plunging in media's rays, would have the greatest of pleasure in making your acquaintance,
3: as she is passionately attached to music of any kind.
2: Bloom tries very hard to get Stephen to come home, and in fact he succeeds. Now, why he does that, we can't really tell, but I think one thing is, Bloom all day was lonely, had nobody to talk to, and he admires Stephen. Stephen would be of a slightly higher strata of society and uh, clever and all of that. And Bloom would like to have intellectual conversation. Uh, When he explained uh, metempsychosis, he did quite well. Molly wasn't interested. Nobody's interested in what Bloom says. So there's one. Some people, and I'm not quite sure, I just report that, have suspected kind of homosexual interest. Uh, That's one thing. Now, Mm -hmm. you can always find that, and I'm not saying it's not there, but... To me it doesn't mean all that much. Another thing is, of course, and it's interesting to speculate how an ordinary novel would have gone in what direction. Here we have a marriage that's gone a bit stale. The daughter Millie is away and there's a young student whom we don't quite know around and there's the talented, handsome, they think, young man with great potential. Now wouldn't it solve everything if, in a kind of fairy-like tale, Stephen were to take Millie and they would marry and somehow the marriage would be... Uh, it's almost strange that we think of it. We, we, we don't think as well. But that would have been a normal ending and maybe Bloom has something like that in mind with Milly. It comes out later that he might also think of replacing the rather crude Boylan by a much more refined person. At least Molly will think there is a motive. But we do not know. We normally don't know about the motives of other people, or even our own.
0: But there is a monetary idea too. He hears Stephen's voice and he thinks that he can have it trained then he would accompany Molly and they could make a lot of money out of it that way.
2: You're quite right. I really forgot the the most important Mm -hmm. reason, that he could use Stephen's vocal possibility and Molly's uh, as a sign of business. He could teach her talent, she could give him singing lessons. It would be an ideal kind of arrangement. And if then there's some emotional entanglement, uh, all the better. But as we say, we are just speculating. Hmm? But again, it's a projection. Bloom is sort of daydreaming. And don't forget, in the normal expectation of a a novel, the two characters come together and something momentous should happen. And it's anticlimactic that it does not. This, in a way, is what it is in normal life. Very often, you don't have these happy endings. Everything's tied up neatly and they lived happily ever after. Uh, It plays with the expectation and the normal kind of fictional
0: convention and uh obsessive well to paraphrase a former teacher that's ulysses for you isn't it yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what you least expect yeah. comes yeah. and it's not the normal thing at all
2: they at least walk into the night even arm in arm and talking and it seems they talk more at the end together I mean Stephen talks more than they did at the beginning so there is a kind of approximation I mean they do come a, a bit closer than they were before whether it lasts will be seen in the next chapter
4: and